Well, I have a question for all of you who are parents. Have you ever uh, temporarily lost a young child? Those of you who are not parents are thinking, what kind of horrible, terrible, irresponsible adult would ever lose a child? And those of you who are parents are thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're like little ninja warriors. They just disappear. Sometimes right in front of your eyes, you're looking at them and you think they were right there like two seconds ago. Uh, And it always tends to be when you're at the airport or at a water park or the mall, someplace where there's lots of people. And panic is not uh, an adequate word to describe the adrenaline rush that happens when you go, I can't find this two-year-old. Years ago, when uh, one of our sons, Jason, was probably two, two and a half, our small group went to uh, get pumpkins together. So this is out in the, in the country, and it's a farm, and it's got, you know, a corn maze and uh, apple cider and bobbing for apples and trailer rides and all that stuff. All that was happening. So we, um, we're together, and between the four or five families, there's, you know, a dozen kids between the ages of one and ten. And uh, at one point, we're on the trailer, and we're all sort of rumbling along, you know, just taking a ride around the farm. And Cherry looks at me, and she says, Where's Jason? And, of course, all the adults are looking under the hay bales, right? Is somebody sitting on him? And then, and then I'm like, I, I thought you had him. And she's like, I thought you had him. And so I jump off the trailer, and I just sprint down back this trail. And as, I, as I'm coming up to where we had loaded, I see this group of adults, right, that are trying to console this terrified, screaming young child. And I run in and I, you know, I pick him up and he squeezes my neck as hard as he can. And I'm, you know, trying to grasp for air before he was squeezing my neck, but because I just sprinted and it it was just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm so glad that I found you. Now you've got your own stories and I'm sorry for making you relive them because they're horrible things, even just to relive. Uh, But it's a great place to start the passage we're going to look at today about the lost sheep, the lost coin. And these are the first two. And really, collectively, there's three stories that make up this one parable, the prodigal son, which we'll get to next week. And uh, so it's just a perfect segue to think about the love of, of, of of a father or of a mother for a child, and the huge relief when they find the lost child. So, and I just would ask this question to sort of set all this up. How long do you look for a lost child? So, Luke chapter 15, uh, we are rumbling through. This is sort of the middle of Luke's gospel. Luke 14 and 15 have got these big parables. Matthew doesn't record them. Uh, nearly the extent that Luke does, nor does Mark. John doesn't have any. Uh, and, and, and so Jesus is filling us in on the kingdom of God, the nature of God, and we come now to, this, um, to these two parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm reading. We're going to just sort of walk through this verse by, verse by verse. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear Jesus. So you just need to know the tax collectors are like the lowest form of life on the planet, according to uh, the Jews, because 
they are traitors, and it's, it's even worse than that. The Roman Empire is this big, sprawling, massive conglomeration of countries uh, that, that are part of Africa, Asia, Latin America. And uh, it's an empire that really no one will ever be able to match. Roman Empire is bigger and lasts longer than other empires. And that's in part because the Romans were so uh, good at certain things. They're so pragmatic and utilitarian. For instance, when it came to collecting taxes, what they did was they sold franchises. So they would conquer an area, and then they would go in and they'd go, okay, so we're going to bid on this village here, and whoever promises to give us the most money from this village, you're in charge. And you can do whatever you want to get the money. Use whatever forms of force and threat and whatever. And whatever you raise beyond what you promise to give us, you get to keep. Okay? So this is, uh, this is ingenious. It works well. They collect massive amounts of money. But the, but the people who agree to be the tax collectors are acting against the well-being of their friends and family and neighbors. And they become pariahs. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not just that they don't have any friends. Right? And it's not just that they can't testify in court because they're considered so such scoundrels and and low lowlifes, that, that their word can't be trusted. The, the temple, the church, won't even take their money, right? That's, that's, what kind of, that's what kind of animus is felt against these people. So these are, by the way, the people Jesus attracts. So it's not the religious people. It's not the, the people that clean up well. It's, uh, it's the tax collectors and other sinners who are hanging out with Jesus. And this drives the Pharisees crazy. Uh, The Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. Uh, They murmured. They grumbled. They moaned. They complained. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's not just that if he hung out with them in order to rebuke them, that would be one thing. But he's actually eating with them, right? He's becoming friends with them. They're at the loud table in the restaurant, laughing and having a great time. And the Pharisees are looking in, you know, fasting. They're looking in, and they're just furious that Jesus would hang out with these people because he thinks they're so, uh, they think that these people are so despicable. And uh, they think they're so much better than these people. Now, uh, point of order, and this becomes much clearer when we get to the story of the prodigal son, which is, by many cases, the greatest story ever told. Many would say that, but also one of the most misunderstood stories. So you got to come back next week to get that uh, all straightened out. But uh, the Pharisees, they look down on everybody. They look down, of course, on all the Gentiles, and they look down on the Jews who are not keeping the laws that the Pharisees have come up with. So they're looking down on everybody, and Jesus is welcoming everyone, and the tax collectors and the sinners are listening to him. So, verse 3, Jesus told them, and that would be the Pharisees, so they're muttering, they're grumbling, they're complaining, so he turns to them and he tells them uh, this parable. Verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Okay, so a couple things to understand here as we get into this. Jesus is a master of using common, ordinary, everyday kinds of things in order to teach a lesson. 
The Jews were shepherds because that's one of the very few things that the land would actually sustain. So in Exodus, uh, when the Jews are slaves in Egypt, God through Moses promises them this land. Right? It's a land, quote, overflowing with milk and honey. So when people hear this, they think, mm, this is like a lush New Zealand uh, pasture, right? It's going to be just, just bountiful. No, 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 uh, very different than that. As a matter of fact, the opposite of that. Uh, Israel, Palestine, this area, is, is an area uniquely crafted by God to engender faith. The only way you can survive on this barren uh, piece of rock is if God provides rain. Because there just isn't any water. It's a brown, hot desert area. We've got this uh, slide that, that shows if you were to take Israel and just sort of take a big buzzsaw and cut down the middle of it and open it up and look at the cross section. You see that there's four distinct zones. Now, zone one doesn't factor into the biblical story because this little strip here up against the Mediterranean, this strip is the only passable land passage between Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's the only way you can get. If you're not going by boat, if you're going to walk, this is, this is the only place you can pass. So whoever was in charge of Europe, whoever the power was in Europe, who wanted to control the trade routes and keep them open, they owned, they controlled this part of the land. The second zone is a big uh, piece of rock. This is the promised land. And there's no fresh water on it. Okay? So it has to rain in order for there to be water for people to survive. Uh, and then you go down, and it, this doesn't accurately show this, but you go down to, into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on the planet not covered in water. And it's, and by the way, the water is dead. The Dead Sea is dead. The ocean's 2.5% salt. The Dead Sea is like 30% salt. So if you go there, it's weird. You float. I mean, it doesn't matter if you don't float, you float. And, uh, but you do not want to get this water in your eyes. I promise you that. That is a bad day. So, uh, in, and while you're driving down to go to the Dead Sea, by the way, you pass all these signs that say, have coffee at the lowest coffee shop on the planet, right? Get gas at the gas station that is the lowest gas station on the planet because you are going down. It's, it's a fault that is so, it's like 100 times more active than the San Andreas Fault. It's just this, it's a deep hole, and at the bottom of it is, more, is water that you can't drink. And then zone four is desert. So even if you could get to the desert, it doesn't do you any good because there's no water there for you to drink. So, so God prepared a people for the land. He prepared a land for the people. And when he said this is a land overflowing with milk and honey, what he meant to people who were living in Egypt that had the Nile and uh, the rich soil that the Nile would bring every time it flooded, what he's saying to the people is, uh, you're not going to be farmers like you were in Egypt. You're going to be shepherds, milk. You're going to have goats and, I guess, to some extent, lambs. And you are also uh, going to have honey. You're going to have whatever else you can find to eat. Okay? So it's a, it's a unique piece of land. So the, the Jews were, by and large, 
shepherds. Now, there's, it's, today, the, the Israelis have done a great job with irrigation, and so there's a lot more agricultural space there than there were back then. But at the time, uh, they were shepherds. So now you need to know a couple other things that are happening. When Jesus says to them, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Uh, the Pharisees are thinking, I'm not a shepherd. I'm so much better than being a shepherd. Now, having a hundred sheep meant you had a small business. And if you had a hundred sheep, you probably were not acting as a shepherd because it was a job that nobody wanted. It's quite remarkable that Jesus would identify himself as the good shepherd. Nothing like saying, I'm the wise strategic CEO. I'm the powerful leader. I'm the, I'm the, 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 the healing surgeon, right? He, he picks this, this shepherd who's just down on the food chain. Now, shepherd is not a facilitator. It's not a consultant. The shepherd is in charge of the sheep. But it's a job nobody wanted. So the Pharisees are feeling a little... You know, uh, there's, there's sort of two jabs here, actually, because he says, uh, suppose you, you have 100 sheep and you lose one of them. Well, in, in Middle Eastern nomenclature, you don't ever say it that way. You don't lose a sheep, a sheep would run away. You don't, uh, you don't miss the train, the train leaves without you. Right? You, don't, you don't drop a plate. The plate fell out of your hand. It's the plate's fault that it fell out of your hand. So you just never, you never own things that are going wrong. But um, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who think they're so high and mighty, suppose you're, you know, one of you is a shepherd, and you've got a hundred sheep, and you lose one. And they're just thinking, oh, good grief, this would, you know, this is not going to happen. Now, I should also just pause to note, because... uh, I certainly, for the last 20 years, have been under the impression that sheep were uh, dumb, right? Dumb as rocks. Uh, As a matter of fact, I was sort of told you have to apologize to the rocks if you call them as dumb as sheep because the sheep are are these clueless animals. If you think of sheep as nice, white, cuddly, you you know, just sort of, collections of cotton fluff that are happy and, and, uh, and doe-eyed and follow you around like a little puppy, then you do not understand uh, the nature of sheep. Now, as it turns out, um, sheep are a lot smarter than we realized. So there's been a lot of tests with sheep now, and they can identify lots of different faces, and they can come up with ingenious ways to get out of, uh, uh, of pens. They're, they're much smarter than we thought. But sheep have two issues. Number one, uh, they tend to follow the mob. And they give no thought to what's going on. So about 10 years ago, there was a, uh, there was a, 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 a shepherd, there was a sheep farm with 1,500 sheep. And while the, uh, while the shepherds were taking a, a breakfast break... Uh, the sheep decided to follow each other off a cliff, all 1,500 of them. So somebody leads the way, and everybody else is just following. Now, uh, it's, it's tragedy. The first 400 plunged to their death. As it turned out, those 400 then provided a little bit of a landing pad for the next 1,100, so they all survived because now you know, it's, it's the, you're not falling as far, and you're landing on a soft sheep. So, uh, so they, but they're a little bit 
on the clueless side, I'm just following whoever is in front of me, and I'm not thinking about where that takes me. Um, secondly, they, they can be irrationally independent. Because if you're, a, if you're a sheep, you're sort of just, you know, a walking lamb chop to most of the food chain above you, right? You can't run away, and you can't fight, right? So you're pretty helpless as a sheep. And uh, as a matter of fact, just two weeks ago, uh, you might have seen this news story. Two weeks ago, they found a sheep. They named him Chris. Some hikers were hiking. They found the sheep that had been lost for five to six years. And it looks like this. So the, the sheep, so, so the, you now, uh, we, sheep in the wild used to lose their wool just naturally. But we've now bred sheep so that they don't lose their wool. So this guy's been out there for uh, five or six years, and he grows uh, 89 pounds of wool, enough for 30 uh, men's suits. And uh, they say it's amazing that he survived because had he ever fallen over, he would never have been strong enough to get back up. So there's a picture of him after they sheared him. Um, so sheep have two tendencies, neither of which serve them well. Just follow the mob or run off on my own. When Isaiah says to us, we're all like sheep that have gone astray, right? each has departed to his own way, uh, this is not a compliment. He's not saying we're all like eagles right, that are noble and have sharp talons and great eyesight and great strength. Uh, or we're all like dogs that uh, are loyal and can be taught how to do certain jobs or at least do tricks. Or we're all like cats that can fend for themselves from the time they're quite young. Now, we're tragically all like sheep. So um, you need to understand that, uh, that backdrop as we look at this passage. So, Jesus tells them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the first sheep until he finds it? Now, uh, when I first read this, I thought, uh, I don't think I'd go. If I've got 99 still and I've lost one, what happens to the 99 while I'm looking for the one? Well, doesn't qualify me as the good shepherd, right? And that's who Jesus is talking about. So the 99 would be taken to safety, or you'd have somebody else looking after the 99. And then we're being told that the good shepherd is going to go after that sheep. Um, And when he finds it, uh, he's actually going to put it on his shoulder. We've got one more picture here. He's going to put it on his shoulder. You've seen this. Uh, And this is is a helpful picture in one sense, and then it shows us a, uh, you know, the love of God. Because this is, again, right, this is what we're, we're getting a picture of. Uh, there's three stories here. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the peasant woman who finds the coin. Uh, Jesus, the father in the story of the prodigal son, is got a love for and is looking for uh, and reaching out for. So we see, I think, the love and the care of Christ. This picture is, you know, you've got an Anglo Jesus, and he's got a neatly trimmed beard, and you know, you know, he's got a clean robes. I mean, all this stuff is no, this is not what it looked like. And the sheep looks nice and and happy, and and smells good, and all of that. Now, this is this is a pretty sanitized picture, but but what he's saying here is the good shepherd 
is going to go after this missing uh, lamb. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus adds, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. If you wonder where this verse was, if you wonder why we would say, if you come to faith in Christ, right, there's a party in heaven because the angels in the presence of God see his joy, the joy of a father, right, the joy of a dad who has lost a son, who finds him. And so there's, there's rejoicing when this happens. Now, um, there's a little tongue-in-cheek here when Jesus says the 99 righteous persons. He's talking to the Pharisees. It's, you know, the Pharisees aren't righteous, right? The Pharisees are, are uh, they're, they're self-righteous, <laughs> but they're not righteous. And, but what, what Jesus is saying to them is, in heaven, where I happen to have been, right, little little sneaks that under the radar, right? I actually know what it's like in heaven because I've been there. In heaven, there's more excitement over these tax collectors and sinners who are, who are repenting and who are, who are looking to God than there are the 99 of you self-righteous snits over here who think that you're so high and mighty. <clears throat> Reading on, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Okay, so this is, the, the suggestion here is that the coins this woman had might have been part of her dowry, and they might have even been woven into a, a, a headdress that she wore. But the homes at this point are small, single-car garages, sort of a low door, no windows. They're dark uh, in there. And so if she loses this coin... Um, she's going to light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it because it's a significant part of her wealth and her future. Um, and she's going to call her friends and neighbors together and say, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, um, as I said, these two stories are... Two of three, they're they're really setting up the third story, the prodigal son, and so we'll we'll next week we're going to have to look at all of this together to make sense of it. But there's enough here for us to to ponder and and uh, reflect. And so I want to leave you with four points, four observations uh, out of these first two parables. Um, number one, we are like sheep. Um, we are broken. We're needy. Um, we're sinful. We're dependent creatures who need a shepherd. Now, um, I'm basing this on the sheep analogy here. I could base this on just about any chapter in the Bible. I realize that being told that we're broken, that we're needy, that we're like sheep, this is not a compliment, and that some of you don't want to hear it, uh, or you don't want your kids to hear it because it might damage their self-esteem. Since the 17th century, the Enlightenment, this this late 17th century, early 18th century, intellectual movement that started in Europe, that dethroned God, where man became the measure of all things, uh, it has been popular to believe that we are good people getting better. And that, that to the extent that there is something going wrong, 
bombings in Paris and Beirut and planes being downed or whatever it might be. All the problems happening in Chicago on any given weekend. All the problems happening in any classroom and in any family. To the extent that there are things wrong, the, the argument was, starting with Rousseau, uh, the argument was that, well, this is just due to a lack of education or a lack of, uh, uh, of insight or it's because of bad systems or it's because of something else. Because we are good people. And in the right environment, everything will be right. And Rousseau is the one who said this, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a political theorist, who said, mankind left in the wild, right, in the pure, pristine uh, wild, is good and noble. It's only when you bring man into the city that man begins to have problems. Well, I mean, this is just nonsense. First of all, Rousseau is a scoundrel. He is a lecherous uh, jerk who does not care for any of the women that he sleeps with or lift a finger to take care of any of the many children that he fathered. He, uh, he's, just a, he's just a jerk, and he's wrong. <laughs> right? Right? We're not, if we're honest, we know we're not good people getting better. We try hard, but, um, but we're broken. In, uh, in a relatively new book uh, called Original Sin by uh, Alan Jacobs, he cites a secular theorist, this guy by the name of Randall Gerald. And Gerald, who is a secular critic, writes this. Most of us know that Rousseau was wrong, that man, when you knock his chains off, set up the death camps. Right? So this is a secular critic saying, look, if they didn't know it then... When Rousseau was alive, we certainly know it now, after two world wars, after the genocides, after racial oppression, after slavery, after all the things that we've done. We get it now. We're not good people just waiting to get better. And even secular people are now coming around and saying that. We may claim that man was, uh, is becoming better, morally pure and perfect, but the facts keep pulling us back. So, I get this is not good news. I'm just trying to be honest. I I try really hard to be a good person. And that's a good thing. You should try hard to be good. But you should not be under the illusion that you can be good enough for God to love you. That's a death trap. That's a death trap. And that's the second point. Number one, we're like sheep. We're broken. We're sinful. We're dependent upon a shepherd. Number two, religion doesn't work. Religion doesn't work. Um, Our efforts to earn God's favor, to elevate ourselves through hard work or through keeping certain religious practices, whatever they might be, good things, showing up at church, reading the Bible, serving others, good things. Our efforts to earn God's favor that way are ultimately doomed. We are too broken. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Mike, I, I, I sort of think of you as a religious guy. What do you mean religion doesn't work? Well, I try really hard not to be a religious guy. I hope that that's not what you hear from me. Uh, I hope you hear the opposite, 
that religion is a dead end. Uh, I try and point you in a very different direction every week. Christianity is not a religion. There are people in the church who are religious, but that's because they haven't understood what the message is. Karl Barth, one of the more prominent theologians of the 20th century, uh, complicated guy, but at times a brilliantly insightful guy, uh, wrote brilliantly about this. Let me read you this quote. The gospel of grace is the end of religion. Okay? So the gospel, the good news of God's grace, of his love, his unmerited favor on us, the fact that he loves us not because we're lovable, but because he's love, and that he will accept us and we get forgiveness of sins and justified and gain eternal life. The gospel of grace is the end of religion. The final post on the closed sign on the sweatshop of the human race's perpetual struggle to think well of itself. For that, at the bottom, is what religion is. Man's well-meant but dim-witted attempt to approve of his unapprovable condition. By doing odd jobs, he thinks some important something will thank him for. Religion, therefore, is a loser, a strictly fallen activity. It has a failed past and a bankrupt future. There was no religion in Eden, and there won't be any in heaven. And in the meantime, Jesus has died and risen to persuade us to knock it all off right now. Religion doesn't work. These parables, please understand, the lost sheep is not looking to be found. Right? It's the good shepherd that goes looking for the lost sheep. The coin is not looking to be found. <laughs> right? It's the woman. It's the Christ figure looking for the coin. We don't find God. We allow ourselves to be found. He is the one looking. Christianity is not us reaching up to try and be good enough and noble enough and religious enough that God will find favor with us. It's recognizing that we're broken and we're sheep and we need a good shepherd. At the highest level, let me suggest that there are three options out there for all of us. Number one is immorality. To just say, there's nothing, there's no God, there's no rules, do whatever you want, uh, what you see is all you get, so go for everything you want in this life because when your heart stops ticking, the show's over. That's it. So there's that option. Do whatever. No rules, no God. The second option is religion. Okay? And this option says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try really hard. There is a God and there are rules, and I need to do more good than bad. I need, to, I need to say certain prayers in a certain way or I need to do certain things. I need to check off certain boxes so that I will be good enough so that God will find favor with me. That is the religion of the Pharisees. The third option, okay, immorality, religion, the third option is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says... Uh, I am a sheep, and um, I am depending upon God's goodness and his love. And I am appealing to the finished work of Jesus dying in my place in order to be reconciled with God. <clears throat> Christianity is based on the crazy idea that God reaches down. He loves us not because we're good. He loves us because he is love. At the moment, 
religion is making a big run. This is a bit surprising, actually. In this country, secularism is surging, but secularism is in one sense a religion. It's more sort of half the secular people are probably in the immorality camp and the other half are in a, they've got a religious view of secularism whether they realize it or not. But around the world, uh, religion is surging. This is a surprise. In the 20th century, most academics advanced this theory called the secularization theory that said the more we get educated, the more we understand, the more we learn about what's going on, the more people will walk away from God. They'll walk away from that superstition. And uh, they'll become independent, rational, scientific kind of people. Hasn't happened. Quite the opposite. Uh, Religion is surging ahead. And this is not a win for us. In this context, what it means is the Pharisees are winning. We need to understand the gospel as something very different. This is the third point. Point number one, we're broken, we're sheep, we need a shepherd. Point number two, religion doesn't work. Point number three, we need to understand the gospel is something very different. Christianity is not religion. Right? And one of, the, one of the best ways to point this out is to say, we could take Buddha out of Buddhism, and it wouldn't change. You could take Gandhi out of Hinduism, and it wouldn't change. You could take Muhammad out of Islam, and it wouldn't change. You cannot take Jesus out of Christianity. There's nothing left, right? Because Jesus is not just a teacher and a prophet and an example. He's a savior, right? And and he's doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Again, a quote from Bart. He says, I want to set aside the notion of the Christian religion because it's a contradiction in terms. You won't learn anything positive about religion from Christianity. And if you look for Christianity and religion, you'll never find it. To be sure, Christianity uses the forms of religion and, to be dismally honest, too many of its adherents act as if it were a religion. But it isn't one, and that's that. The church is not in the religion business. It's in the gospel-proclaiming business. And the gospel is the good news that all man's fuss and feathers over his relationship with God is unnecessary because God, in the mystery of the word, who is Jesus, has fixed it up himself. So, where does that leave us? We're broken. Religion is a bust. We need to understand the gospel is something very different. I would just close this morning by saying a couple things. First of all, I want to encourage you to work really hard to make certain that your understanding of God is shaped by this book, not by anything else. And, and what we're being told today, right, is that God is almost like a, a, a lovesick lover seeking after those who are lost like us. That's the heart of God. He's far, more, he's far more concerned with you than he is with your sin. Right? He's, it's, it's a different image. We need the right understanding of who God is. Secondly, we need a right understanding of who we are. This book would suggest that we are made in the image of God, have great value, highly valued, but greatly fallen, deeply fallen, dead in our sin. And... Uh, Consequently, we've we've got to have a Savior. We are highly valued, 
We are greatly loved, but we are deeply fallen. We need an understanding of who we are that is shaped by this. Um, so Jim Collins says that the first job uh, that we face is to face the brutal facts. So I want to encourage you to face the brutal facts and to move forward from there. We're broken, but there is a good shepherd. But there is a way back. It's not a religious answer. It's a gospel answer. So you may have shown up here thinking, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be religious. I just I got news for you. That dog won't hunt. That path doesn't take you to where you need to go. The way forward is through Christ and Christ alone. Tonight, Lake Forest Campus, 7 o'clock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push hard on helping people understand how grace works and what it is and how we've got to think very likely differently than you do about how this relationship with God works. So I invite you, 7 o'clock, as Garth said, there's, there's uh, music, there's some dessert, and uh, there's child care. 7 o'clock at the Lake Forest campus. Um, secondly, I would say to you, maybe you've got this, you go, yeah, Mike, I got it. I've been dialed in. I'm amazed at the grace and love of God. Uh, that's what I celebrate. That's what I thank God for every day. Great. Then I just want to say, share the story. <laughs> because the gospel is good news. It's not good science. It's not good reasoning. You don't understand this because you think about it long enough. The only way you get the gospel is if somebody tells you, right? It's good news. News has to be communicated. So I would encourage you to be an ambassador, to be a spokesman, to be a conduit for sharing that story. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for a report in this parable of Jesus, that suggests that you are searching for us like a, like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep, like a poor widow looking for, uh, for money for her dowry, like a parent looking for a lost child. We thank you for your, for your love. We thank you for the news that you care more about us than you care about our sin. Help us uh, to stop being religious and to lean ever more deeply into the gospel. Guide us, direct us, empower us. May that truth of your love and the finished work of Christ change how we think and live and what we say to others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.